I'm about to respond to an email to a friend when I see some nice pre-written responses available for me to pick. Ooh, that looks tempting. Picking one of these would save me some time. Sure, LOL, sounds yummy isn't exactly my sentiment, but it will save me a whole 3.5 seconds of typing. These so-called smart replies are becoming more and more common. If you use Gmail, you certainly have seen them, ready and waiting for you to use when you reply to a friend. They're now popping up on platforms such as LinkedIn and Slack. And during this era of social distancing, we may be using them much more as our communications migrate to online channels. But are there disadvantages to using smart replies? According to one researcher, using smart replies are affecting how we communicate and may even change the direction of our relationships altogether. This is Spark Dialogue Podcast. You can find us at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or wherever you find your podcasts. Spark Dialogue tells the stories of science and technology and how they relate to our society, culture, art, communication, and who we are as people. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. If you're a supporter of this podcast, you'll be getting an opportunity to play with some of the software we're talking about in today's episode. You'll get to see how quickly smart replies lead the conversation to go way astray. Look for that on the Patreon page at patreon.com slash sparkdialogue. And if you're not a patron and you want to become one, just check out the website at sparkdialogue.com or check out the Patreon page. Hi, I'm Jess Hohenstein. I'm a PhD candidate at Cornell University working in the Robots in Groups lab. So be honest. Have you saved yourself a few seconds and used a smart reply? Um, yeah, I have. These smart replies are becoming more and more common on more and more platforms. It's because people actually use them. So I would say the most common place that people are seeing these smart replies is in Gmail. So with Gmail having over half of the U.S. email market, it's likely that you've logged on to Gmail in the past couple of years and noticed these little suggested replies at the bottom of your emails. So those are actually called smart replies. Since Gmail started integrating them into their email service, we've seen them in lots of other messaging applications such as Skype, LinkedIn, Facebook, Slack. So they're really appearing all over the place. Now, it's one thing when your spell check reminds you that a lot is two words and not one, or how to spell linguini, but it's quite another thing when the AI is telling you what to say. What's interesting about smart replies is that in terms of artificial intelligence, AI mediating our communication, we're used to things like spell check and grammar correction, where AI is looking at the things you're typing and offering suggestions in terms of spelling or grammar, the AI here is instead offering suggestions of what you should say. So this seems like a much more intrusive intervention in communication. And since communication is so fundamental to how we form and maintain relationships, even if this AI mediation is tweaking the way that we communicate in really subtle ways, this could be having large effects on the way that we interact with each other. As soon as these things started getting rolled out, again, Google Allo was the first place where we saw smart replies. We figured they had to be affecting either linguistics or interpersonal relationships or both. Like, 
even if you're not using these things, you're seeing these suggestions of what to say and that could potentially be priming you to feel certain ways, to respond to certain ways. And it's just, we felt like there's no way that these things are not affecting the way we're communicating. Responding to an email about getting together to go to a meeting, perhaps Gmail will suggest, how about tomorrow? Or, I can do it next week. Sharing a recipe? The reply might be, sounds yummy, or LOL, gross. So how in the world are these smart replies generated? Yeah, so surprise, surprise, Google is reading all your emails, but basically these smart replies are generated using machine learning and NLP, which is natural language processing. Uh, so essentially there's a pair of recurrent neural networks where one neural network is looking at this email that you received and breaking it down and encoding it. And then a separate neural network is predicting the response that it thinks you might want to send. So imagine you receive an email that says, how about tomorrow? Or do you want to meet tomorrow? Or something like that. So it will uh, receive that message, break it down and encode it with one neural network. And then it will produce responses such as, sounds good, thanks, see you soon, things like that. But things get weirder when you consider the tone that you use in an email to your boss is different than the tone you use to a college roommate. If your boss sends you the latest internal memo, you're most likely not going to say, cool, I'll check it out. Or how about when he responds, oh, you are so welcome. That sounds a little passive aggressive to me. I obviously can't speak to the exact algorithms that Google is using because I'm not working for Google or any of these commercial messaging systems. But what we have found over and over in our research about these commercially existing algorithms is that the smart replies are significantly linguistically different than the conversation itself. For example, they specifically express more positive sentiment than people would typically express in a conversation. This is changing the language that we use. So you can imagine if you see these smart replies and you want to save time, you might click one even if it's just close enough to what you wanted to say, but not exactly what you wanted to say. Another weird thing about these smart replies, right now it seems like they are not that personalized to an individual. That would definitely be more than a little bit creepy if Google knows your linguistic habits that well. But it also means that using smart replies are making us all sound the same. A hip coffee-drinking millennial in Chicago is given the same potential replies as a proper southern grandmother. Using these might begin to make us all a little bit more homogeneous. Is that a good thing? These smart replies really only represent an approximation of your personal communication style. So what we're wondering is, will this change people's communication styles over time? Or could it even make language more homogeneous in the long run if people's personal linguistic styles are being compromised. Many people might feel a bit insulted that an AI can assume what they're thinking. Yet, many people use these smart replies. It's a quick way to blow through your inbox. In our research, we've seen over and over that smart replies do what they're supposed to do. They let people send more messages in less time. And uh, the last year that this data was available, 
Google told us that 12% of all reply emails were generated using smart replies, and that was 2017. So we can imagine since then it's probably grown, especially given the coronavirus happening right now. I think a lot more communication is happening electronically. So uh, yeah, we can presume that the amount of smart reply usage has grown. But from our research, talking to people qualitatively, People have told us that usually smart replies are only used for kind of to start a conversation or more generic responses like, am I available during these times? When things get more complicated, users have told us over and over that smart replies don't really express what they want to say, so they don't use them. It's one thing to use a smart reply when a simple response is all that's needed. A, no, I'm not available next week, or thanks, I'll try it. But what if things get a little bit more complicated? Do people use the smart reply option to cheat a little bit? They think, oh, gee, I don't know what to say here. I'll just let an AI tell me. So over and over in our work, people keep bringing up this idea that smart replies help them with their social anxiety. Smart replies help me to determine what I might want to say when I can't think of anything to say. So we can take this one step farther. What if you're having a political argument over email? What if you just don't see eye-to-eye with that friend you're emailing? Things are spiraling out of control, going downhill fast. Can smart replies come up with the suggestion then? What if they can sense tone, or even act as a mediator? People are considering the AI to be a participant in this conversation when things go awry. That indicates to us that we could possibly be using this AI as some type of mediator. So we're already using natural language processing to analyze the conversational linguistics as the conversation is happening. So this suggests that we could potentially harness that power to detect when a conversation is going awry, and then the AI could possibly suggest suggest conflict resolution strategies or do something to take reparative actions to improve the outcome of this conversation and improve human communication as a whole. This isn't used yet, but it's not that hard to imagine. Already, people are seeing the AI as a participant in our conversations. But think about that for a moment. Do you really want an AI to judge when your conversation is too confrontational and move you into more politically correct ground? A lot of times, conflict might be bad, but sometimes it's actually good. For some people, it's even a big part of their relationship. Do you really want an AI to be judging what you should and shouldn't be arguing about? But let's get back to smart replies as they stand. Right now, they're not mediating. They're just giving you helpful or perhaps not-so-helpful suggestions. And let's be honest, you're not fooling anyone when you use these replies. Chances are, they know that you're using an AI to choose what to say, and it's not doing any favors to your relationship. People can tell when you're using these canned replies, and that negatively affects people's perceptions of you. So it seems like this usage of smart replies seems to show that you maybe don't care as much about the conversation that you're having. And then people are more negatively evaluating their interpersonal perceptions of you as a communicator. And this could lead to things going downhill quickly. 
If the person you're emailing is using automated replies, you probably will feel more likely to use them too. The more that people use smart replies, the more the person that they're communicating with also starts to use smart replies. So it could be like this feeling of if they don't care, then maybe I don't care either. So I'll just use these canned replies too. Using smart replies may save you a little bit of time. But from trampling your personal linguistic style to implying you're just too lazy to type or reply yourself, smart replies aren't doing your relationships much good. It does seem like people can tell that you're using them whenever you use them, and that negatively reflects on their interpersonal perceptions of you as a communicator. So uh, it seems like things might need to change in terms of the way smart replies are rolled out. And then we've also seen that linguistics are changing, Of the linguistics of the conversation are changing because you're using these smart replies. You're sacrificing your personal communication style just to save a bit of time, and that might not be something that you want to do. There's a lot of potential perils to using smart replies, but our research also indicates some potential promises. So I'm hoping that the developers of smart replies will look at these things and realize these things and move development towards these promises and away from the potential perils. Jess decided to look at this in more detail. In her experiment, she had people communicate using smart replies in difficult situations, situations where they were trying to solve hard problems together. Sometimes they came into agreement. Other times they didn't. Jess wanted to see what the role of the AI producing the smart replies was in all of this. This experiment was really inspired by a paper that I read a couple of years ago by M.C. Ellish, and she identified this thing called the moral crumple zone. So what she did is look at a bunch of catastrophic interactions with intelligent systems, such as the Three Mile Island nuclear disaster. As a result of these catastrophic interactions, people were blaming the human more than they were blaming the intelligent system. Even though this intelligent system was providing insufficient information or not necessarily providing information that was helpful to the human who was interacting with it, the human was the one who was designated responsibility for this system failure. Obviously, Three Mile Island is a huge catastrophic disaster, but that made me wonder, in terms of people communicating with each other with the mediation of smart replies, would it be possible that we would see something similar if a conversation goes awry in just an everyday messaging context? We did see that things changed when smart replies were involved in everyday conversations. We saw that when conversations went awry, people trusted the AI or the smart replies more than the person that they were talking to, which is something that we didn't expect at all. And additionally, we saw that some of the blame that the person otherwise would have assigned to their human partner that they were talking to, they took that blame and assigned some of it to the AI, which was very surprising. Another thing that the creators of this AI have to worry about, this AI is learning from us, normal people. It learns from how we talk and how we interact. And if you remember correctly, we humans aren't always the best teachers. 
Do you remember Tay, the Twitter chatbot that composed its own tweets by learning from other humans? Tay was a disaster, obviously. Uh, for any listeners that don't know, Tay was a Twitter chatbot that I think Microsoft made, but as soon as they released it into the wild and it started interacting with users, it became incredibly racist, like really terribly racist. Obviously, I don't work for Google or any of these companies that are writing these algorithms to generate smart replies, but from what I understand, I know that they've specifically made some changes to the algorithm to try to keep those things from happening. So if you've seen smart replies, you know they're usually really short, really generic, and that's probably part of the reason that people can tell that you're using them. For example, in the beginning, I know that the smart replies often suggested, I love you. And obviously that's not appropriate for most emails that you're replying to people with. So they had to change the algorithm to try to move away from things that people say often in messaging to things that made more sense in the context of the conversation itself. I also know that these commercially existing smart replies don't use any gendered pronouns, which I think is really interesting. So obviously they're thinking about these ethical implications. Things get even more complicated when stickers or emojis are involved. Pictures have a lot more context than words. Context that is cultural, subtle, that AI can pick up on, but perhaps not understand. An interesting example happened when the now decommissioned Google Allo, which provided smart replies in a chatting setting, suggested some emojis. One of the problems they had is that, for example, someone gave a gun sticker and one of the suggestions was a little man wearing a turban. Oh no! <laughs> and obviously that is... Terrible. That has a lot of connotation that, yeah. that I imagine with stickers or with emojis, that's even more um, a minefield because mm -hmm. there is a lot of cultural background that, that it's hard for an AI to pick up on. Right. Yeah. So I, I had not heard of that. That's really awful. But I think it's like anything else that's trained on data from the wild. Like it's going to take these systemic, these institutional biases that we already have and just exacerbate them. So it's learning from us. So it's going to take those and just project them back out. And I think it's like these multiple biases that have appeared over the years in Google search. It's just something they're going to have to learn about and write into the algorithm, change the algorithm as these things come up and they notice these issues. It's weird. This AI is just coming up with simple suggestions on what to say, just to save us a bit of time. But we humans like to anthropomorphize things. We don't see this AI as just an algorithm. We almost see it as a person. There's this really well-known paradigm called computers as social actors, or CASA, and this tells us that people are, are likely to assign human characteristics to technology that they're interacting with. But this is something that we really didn't expect to see happen with smart replies. So smart replies are just, to us, they seem similar to autocorrect or grammar correction, things like that. We didn't expect to see people assign human characteristics to them, but that's exactly what we saw in our research on the moral crumple zone and smart replies. We saw that when conversations went awry, 
people considered the smart replies to be like a participant or an actor in their conversation. And that was just a really strange and unexpected finding. It seems so simple, but it could have a huge effect on how we communicate, our linguistic tendencies, and might even homogenize us as a culture. Is that worth saving a few seconds of going through your email inbox? Maybe. But as AI becomes more prevalent in our society, you might ask yourself, do you really want an AI bot to tell you what to say to help you break up with your girlfriend? Or on the other side, do you want to be the one being told by an AI that your boyfriend is breaking up with you? Spark Dialogue Podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. You can find us at the web at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or any of your podcasting platforms. Remember, if you're a patron of this podcast, check out the bonus content on patreon.com sparkdialogue. Thanks for joining us today, and see you in two weeks for another episode. Some of the background music you heard was produced by me. Others are clips from When the Sky Turns Blue by Bow Crew, Truth by Only Meath, Kate Ulrin, The Septahela Remix by Septahelix, Plucked Contemporary Boomed by Kara Square, and Blue Like Venus by Spinning Merkaba. Links to these songs and other information can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com.